Okay, so um, we've prayed, um, we've read, we've heard the word. Let's uh, let's have a little bit of a think about it. I'm uh, I'm kind of proud of myself this week, and that's because I've planned Christmas. No, better than that, actually, I've, I've actually planned Easter. Okay, it's not just Christmas, but Easter. Um, Easter next year, if you, in case you didn't know, it's on Sunday the 17th of April. Um, put it in your diary. Uh, it may already be automatically in your diary. You may not have a diary for 2022 yet, so that's fine. Um, but I uh, hope you can join us. That's Easter next year. And if that sounds ridiculous, um, and let's face it, planning anything more than about a week ahead has been a fool's errand for much of the last 18 months. But um, I find that when I, when I start to get a little bit ahead, have a bit of lead in time to planning, um, I just begin to feel a little bit calmer. I, I begin to sort of think a little clearer. Um, planning actually enables me to be more spontaneous, I find. Um, but I haven't always felt this way. Um, if you jump back 20 years, I was in my final year of a degree, a history degree at Exeter University. Um, three years of completing work as close to the deadline as I possibly could. I was sort of known as Mr. Last Minute. And uh, I would go out with my friends to, uh, to Warehouse and the Lemmy and the other student bars. And then I'd go straight from there to the 24-hour computer room at the university library, um, where I'd sort of middle of the night, I'd knock out a, a great essay, submit it, and then go to bed as the sun rose. Um, and it was just a system that seemed to work for me when I was 20. <laughs> And the final hurdle was my dissertation. So 10,000 words on the social policy of Martin Luther and the Peasants' Revolt, uh, just in case you were interested. And uh, I thought, well, I probably can't do that in one night. So having prepared my notes, I decided 72 hours ought to be enough for this mammoth writing session. And uh, sure enough, I went through three straight days and nights. I think I slept four hours on the first night, two hours on the second night, and no hours on the last night. And because I completed and printed it at 6 a.m. on the deadline day the following morning, you couldn't actually hand it in until the deadline day in person. I was actually the first person in the queue at the university binders uh, when it opened, and I made my way to the history department to be the first person to hand in my dissertation, which I did, job done feeling fairly smug. And from there, I caught a couple of hours sleep before meeting this uh, cute girl, um, a woman, I should say, that I'd recently started dating called Jess, um, who was taking me out to dinner to celebrate, knowing full well uh, that despite my dubious working practices, I'd probably get a good mark. I did, and it really annoyed her. <laughs> Still hurts. Um, <laughs> we had, so I'm told a very nice meal out, <laughs> certainly in terms of the food. But the truth is I can't really remember it because I was just so completely comatose from what I'd done the last 72 hours. Jess tells me that I was sitting right in front of her eating the food, but I wasn't really there. In fact, it was a few days before I recovered. The American writer Letty Cowman wrote about a traveler in the 19th century visiting Africa and engaging a, a group of carriers and guides. I'm reading this from Soul Keeping by John Ortberg, which we're looking at this term. Hoping to make her journey a swift one, she was pleased with the progress of the many miles they covered on the first day. On the second, though, the carriers remained seated and refused to move. 
She was greatly frustrated and asked the leader of the hired hands why they would not continue on their journey. He told her that on the first day, they had traveled too far, too fast, and now they were waiting for their souls to catch up. Cameron reflected, this whirling, rushing life does for us what the first march did for those uh, jungle carriers. The difference was they knew what they needed to restore life's balance, and too often we do not. So for those of you who are Joining us for the first time this morning, um, once again, great to have you with us. Um, love, love having you here. Hope you enjoy your time at All Souls. But just to explain, we're in the middle of this teaching series, which we're calling Soul Keeping. And the point of the series is to think, to reflect, to learn a bit about who we are, uh, who we've become over the last 18 months, how it's left us, how we heal, how we become more whole as disciples of Jesus as we come out of this um, and hopefully through this season And soul is a word that um, appears throughout the Bible. Sorry, got distracted. In the Bible, the idea of the soul, it's not a a, a separate, invisible component of you, you know, sort of mortal body, eternal soul, which upon death floats up to heaven where you sort of play the harp and do maths. That's not a Christian idea. That's actually a sort of Greek mythology that came into the church early on, Plato, etc. The soul in, in the Bible is more your operating system, which integrates your body, your mind, your will, all the different parts of who you are, the things that make you you. And they are sort of bound together in your soul. Your soul is who you are. And the soul in the, in, in the Bible, in contrast to the self, we talked about the self and the soul, um, but the soul, the self, is this sort of individual unit which in society we sort of replace the soul with that can't really bear the weight of human meaning. It's just you and yourself on your own um, and you're to fulfill yourself and it doesn't really work. But the soul exists before God and so when we tend to the soul, that happens in the context of our relationship with God. If that sounds all a little bit rushed or convoluted, I'm just trying to summarize their four weeks of teaching. If you're interested, you can go back. You can hear the rest of the, the, the series on our Facebook or SoundCloud streams. Um, better still, get, get hold of this book, Soul Keeping by John Altberg. So we've talked about what the soul is. We've talked about um, the nature of the soul to need. The soul is needy and the soul needs a center, something to be founded on. The soul naturally orientates it's around something whether that's God or something else and the soul needs to be with God that's what we looked at last week when I channeled my best Sam Wells Um, that's what we've covered so far today's angle is the soul needs rest the soul needs rest so let's just let's turn to our reading gone too far in my notes that would have made things a bit quicker wouldn't it um (laughs) more confusing though let's start our reading we're back in genesis one and two last sunday we were in genesis three so we've gone backwards here um one of the main sources for some of the analysis that i'm I'm using for this passage today is um from a book called garden city uh, which is that one um by john mark comer it's a book that we're looking at as a staff team at the moment at all souls church um it's another one that i can heartily recommend so 
Genesis 1.27, God creates mankind in his image. Male and female. What do we mean by in God's image? Well, the language in this passage suggests that, the way, that what we're looking at here is God's function, what he does, the role he plays, which is to create and to rule. So the idea of the image of God, it was a familiar one in ancient Near Eastern cultures. It usually applied either to the ruler, the king, who would style himself as the image of God, or it would be portrayed as a kind of a statue or an idol in a temple, as an idea that this would show people what uh, an invisible God looks like. We know some of that from archaeology, obviously. So the idea that humans, just ordinary humans, Adam and Eve, remember we said Adam is the Hebrew word for human or humanity. Um, Eve is the Hebrew word for life, so Adam plus Eve, human life. Ordinary humans in Genesis and today are God's image. And uh, Comer says that this theology is, is, is radical. The theology of the image of God in Genesis was and still is subversive and stunning. It claims that all human beings not just those of royal blood, not just the oligarchy of society, not just white men. All of us are made in the image of God. And the role of being the image of God is to partner them, and this is what we saw in our, ruling, in our reading, ruling over, stewarding, unfolding the potential bound up in the creation. That's what humans have done ever since. So in verse 28, we have what theologians call the cultural mandate. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea. That one always made me laugh. Anyone who's ever done fishing, which is not me, trying to rule over a fish. Anyway, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In other words, go make a world. Go create culture. This is something for all of us. Each one of us do this. Whether we do that in paid work or um, you know, paid employment or if we do it in raising children or if we do it through our hobbies or volunteering or online, go make a culture, a.k.a. work. And then later in Genesis 2, God spells out that a bit more clearly and he gives them a, a clear instruction to go work. And the Hebrew word there is abad and it means uh, work or it means service or even worship. So whatever our work, paid or unpaid, whether it comes with a job description or not, it's service to God as his image bearers. I was talking to the PCC about this yesterday and we were talking about actually in some ways when we talk about our church services, it's kind of unhelpful because service is really what we do when we're out there. This is kind of a gathering to equip us for our service, our work. So our work is service to God as his image bearers. And work is good. It's easy to skip over to Genesis 3 when, you know, work becomes subject to the fall. It's cursed. But in the first place, work is good. We're made to work because we're in the image of a God who works. And that sets the scene, really, for the key verse this morning. Um, this is Genesis 2, verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Poor God, six hard days of work. He must be exhausted. Job done. Time to take a well-earned rest. Except that's not the point at all. God doesn't 
rest because he's worn out. Uh, that's impossible. The Psalms tell us God neither slumbers nor sleeps. He doesn't get tired. So why does he rest? He rests because it's good. Everything in the creation has been good up to this point, And rest is no different. Verse 3, then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. He blesses it and he makes it holy. To bless means to speak well of. So we're singing, bless the Lord, O my soul. Talking about our souls. And that means to speak well of. And then he makes it holy. which set apart, special. And again, the contrast here is really striking. Because in all the other ancient Near Eastern religion, sort of holiness is something that relates to a space, a temple, a location. Um, That happens later in the Old Testament as well. But not in this story. Holiness is about time, not space. So from this, a few points to mull. First of all, um, rest is primary. We we talked about this in our series on Mark 1 to 3, where we looked at Jesus going out and having some quiet time out in the wilderness before he started his ministry. He regularly did that to prepare himself. Rest is not just a coping strategy for work that has just burned us out. Rest is purposeful. And the purpose that God models is that rest is to be enjoyed, to delight, to enjoy the fruit of his labor. That's what God does with his rest. We're made in his image, so rest has the same purpose for us as well, to enjoy and to delight. That was a countercultural idea then, and it's a countercultural idea now. We struggle with the idea, I think, of rest as something blessed and holy and productive. We've come a long, long way from this model of rest that God sets out at the start of the story. Here's a few ways I think we get it wrong uh, procrastination, laziness, ambivalence, listlessness. Uh, a vicar I know, um, who's now an archdeacon, not Richard, another one. Um, was doing a PhD on sloth, um, which technically is the sin of acedia, um, which is, uh, I'm not an expert on it, but my understanding is it's, it, it summarizes as basically not giving a damn. Um, and that can be expressed through not doing anything, or it can be expressed through overworking as well. And she says that this is something that our culture has really produced an awful lot of at the moment. It's this sense of purposeless, purposelessness that's people carry around that kind of paralyzes but that paralysis is not the same thing as rest it certainly doesn't rest the soul anyone who's been in that place if you recognize that that was the point in doing anything and you know that it doesn't rest the soul so paralysis is not rest another way we can go wrong is to Look at how people have worked in the past or working conditions in other countries or even in places in our own country today and say, we don't even know the meaning of hard work. We don't deserve rest. That's just a kind of Western decadence kind of thing. And I get that, but I'd push back and I'd say, it's right to be concerned about the working practices and conditions of others. We have incredible influence in the way that we uh, exercise, that we can exercise in the way that we spend money and uh, the way we can campaign and that can make a a huge difference to people everywhere who are being robbed of their God-given right to rest. 
Then there's the whole um, thing about this digital age and what it's done to our ability to rest, switch off, delight, be restored. I know some of you are getting fed up probably now by me talking about this, but I think it's a really big thing. Um, the pandemic forced us to stop in a number of ways, and yet the device in our pocket has so often robbed us of that true rest that we, we, we crave, that our soul needs. So the truth is, as a society, we struggle with God's mandate to rest, to truly rest, to stop, to, to delight, to enjoy. And the consequences of this are fatigue, burnout, anxiety, depression, busyness, starved relationships, worn down immune systems, low energy levels, anger, tension, confusion, emptiness. And these, say John Mark Homer, are the signs of life without proper rest. A soul that is not at rest. Just a couple more things on this. Um, this is repeating a little bit what we said in the summer. Sa- Sabbath, which is uh, this rhythm of resting on the seventh day that God set, it's one of the Ten Commandments. It's actually the one that's explained in the most detail. More time is given to that in Exodus 20 than the other commandments. But it's also the only commandment that Jesus didn't intensify in his teaching. Okay, so the Ten Commandments said, do not kill. Jesus said, actually, you're going wrong if you're getting really angry with people. Uh, Ten Commandments said, don't commit adultery. Jesus said, actually, you're not getting it right even if you're um, looking at someone with lust in your heart. But Jesus actually told people to relax about the Sabbath because the Pharisees have been taking it and turning it into this extra burden for people. The whole point was, remember, the Sabbath was meant to be a blessing. And so again, this um, is paraphrased from Garden City. You can skip the Sabbath. It's not a sin. It's just stupid. You can eat concrete. It's not a sin. It's just idiotic. You can sit up three nights in a row, not getting very much sleep, writing your dissertation. God's not mad at you, but your soul will not thrive under these conditions. Nor should I say, well, your relationships. Although um, Jess stuck it out and you know the rest of the story. But joking aside, one of the biggest, most obvious symptoms of soul fatigue is that our relationships suffer. And remember in the church, it's our love, it's our relationships with one another that Jesus said should be the thing that identifies us to others about being his disciples, that we're his. It's amazing how much more reasonable my children seem to be when my soul is at rest. The more frustrated I get at them, the more I realize that my soul is not at rest. Sometimes the two things are linked a bit. A rested soul enables us to live out the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, all the stuff we looked at over the summer. So what can we actually do about this? I think this one is really about taking stock and considering and praying about what brings rest to the soul. We know the Bible doesn't paint uh, a picture of an easy life for those who want to follow Jesus. It promises persecution and suffering. Much of the New Testament was written by people in prison. So this isn't just about take it easy and have an easy life. That said, here are a few things that Jesus found time for. In what was, remember, just three years of ministry on earth. We, um, yesterday we, we spent the morning as a PCC, as church leadership, considering 
something of where the Lord is leading us to over the three years. And when you do that, the next three years. When you do that, three years feels like a very short time. But Jesus achieved all his ministry aims, his vision for a changed world, uh, you know, demonstrate the kingdom, defeat evil, sin, and death. He did that all in three years. That time must have been really packed, and I'm sure it was, except he also found time for prayer, friendship, church, going to the synagogue, enjoying creation, reading scripture, mountains, gardens, lakes, taking long walks, hanging out in boats, playing with kids, and partying with non-religious types. I wonder how many of those things that you've said to yourself at one time or another, oh, I can't afford to do that, I don't have the time. I know I have. But that is not living like Jesus. Next time you have an ache to do one of those soul-refreshing things, it might be those things, it might be something else. Ask yourself, what would Jesus do? We often ask that question, what would Jesus do? Then do it, because he did. We can think of many reasons to exempt ourselves from proper rest. Jesus didn't, and he wasn't lightweight. Then on a more systematic level, when was the last time that you had a rethink of your rhythms and patterns in life? When was the last time you did that properly? We know the last couple of years have been a huge disruptor to everything, but when was the last time you did that intentionally rather than just sort of reactively? short-term pandemic, long-term digital age and grappling with how that's affecting us. Have you sat down and intentionally thought about your life, your work, and your rest? What are the things that allow your soul to catch up, like the story of the Jungle Guides? I had to do that recently after reflecting on, I guess, who I've been becoming in this new role as vicar. Remember, the whole premise of soul keeping is who you become is more important than what you do. As a husband, as a dad, as a human being, I've had to change some stuff around. Um, You know they say that the perfect recipe for becoming who you are today is to do what you've been doing for the last five years. If your soul is fatigued, that might be something to look at. If, as we've been talking about this this morning, um, if you've been thinking, yeah, my soul is not rested, my soul is fatigued, that's something to look at. Um, If you can, go for a couple with a friend, someone who's here today, discuss the state of your soul. You can arrange that before you leave this morning. Um, Just ask someone who you know, someone who you've met or someone you haven't spoken to for a while. Um, The worst that can happen is they say no, go and ask someone else or come and find me and I'll I'll help connect you with someone who uh, who you can have that conversation with. It's just a, a, an idea of how you might go about reviewing this. Some people like to do this alone in a room on their own with a journal or not. Other people, maybe extroverts or external processors like me, uh, enjoy doing that with other people. There's um, an awful lot more to say about this, um, but I'll stop there. Some of you I know have read The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, um, another great book by John Mark Comer that partly comes out of, partly comes out of this book as well. Um, that's an excellent way to get a bit deeper into this topic if you're thinking that actually you want to have a bit of a serious review about your rhythms uh, of life. And I've got other suggestions, so just ask me. But um, let's stop there. And we're just going to spend a little bit of time just letting our souls rest in prayer, 
and in worship. So, John, why don't you come up, Raymond's, and uh, can I invite you to stand? And um, we're just, yeah, before, before uh, John and Raymond start to play, let's just have a moment of stillness, of peace. And I just want to pray very simply, Lord, would you bring rest to each of us? Soul rest. Lord, where we are fatigued, would you come and bring renewal and restoration? Come be at work in us by your Holy Spirit now and in the week to come. Lord, if there's something for us to be thinking about here, deeper questions of um, our rhythms and patterns of life, would you show us how to do that? Would you help us to find time for that? Would you put um, people in our lives who will challenge us (laughs) to do that? Thank you that one of the fruits of your spirit is peace. And so I just ask now, Lord, that you would bless your church with your peace in this moment as we turn and worship you.